the Protect Your Neck Podcast. Rounding up a crazy week in MMA. Bellator 225 to UFC 241. And a special review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So without further ado, on to the show. What is up, you savages? This is the Protect Your Neck Podcast. I am your host, Dan Tom. Analyst is where you can find at MMAJunkie.com. And on this year program, the Protect Your Neck Podcast, we break down high-level MMA. That's what we're going to do here today, I guess, but in a different way, as you can hear by the different song. Intro, it's a bit of a different episode, a bit of a weekend, weekly, not a weekly, a week roundup in MMA. And as well as what's been going on in um, my life, which I try to tone down on more and really just try to keep this as a service to the bits and pieces. But from what I'm about to share to even at the end, which we will get to some, yes, we will still get, it's just me here, by the way, folks, and I'll, I'll explain why. Not the top five as promised. We're still going to talk some Quentin Tarantino, though, at the end of the episode. Now, we'll even involve that in MMA. Everything will tie into MMA, but I just want to apologize ahead of time for what could be, I'm not going to try to keep it dis, not too disjointed, but what could be, you know, a, 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 an all-over-the-place episode. Uh, we're not going to try to do that. In fact, I just got my, uh, you know, 22 minutes. I just deleted and restarted. Uh, so hopefully now I got the more trimmed version for you guys. I'm not going to go that long, and, 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 and I'm going to keep it focused here. Um, I'm just going to catch you up as to why we're not going to have a top five and some things that, mainly just some things that happened to me uh, for the most part on uh, Thursday, and that will tie into kind of MMA talk. Um, it's, it's a little too late for two, two UFC 241 recap. Even when I'm doing my late Thursday night, early Friday morning breakdown shows where I recap from the week before, it even feels too late to talk about then, hence the reason why I do still intend to be bringing the recap shows and making those a reality during these two weeks off. Uh, hopefully I can still use it for that and not for recovery. But Dan, aren't you taking vacations for recovery? Yes, they should be for normal people, especially for people whose heads are hurting, which mine is, and we'll explain why uh, here in a second. But yeah, we will talk a little bit of UFC 241 to the McGregor, to the fallout from that, which leads to Bellator 225, with, which just happened. Uh, kind of just happened. Like This is being recorded like an hour or two after it, Saturday night. So we'll go over those results, pretty much a weak result in MMA. We won't get too deep. We won't drag on too long, hopefully, on those. And we will finish in the third act, so to speak, uh, with a little review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where I still will dish some uh, Quentin Tarantino character talk, although I'm not going to be giving you any type of top five or anything like that uh, for that today. Um, uh, I will allow Jordan to come on here, or if we redo this one, or however we're going to do it, uh, to figure it out from there. And yes, that is Jordan Killian, who has been a co-host for probably more than most guest co-hosts. I think Jordan still still holds that title, and deservedly so. I love Jordan. Uh, and I know you guys uh, do too. I know I always get great feedback when he co-hosts the show. Unfortunately, like for both of us, like it, it, it really wasn't going to, it just wasn't meant to be. I know, I know, Dan and Tom, anytime you post about the podcast, we know that, A, you're always going to be late anyways, whether you post about it or not. All right, you guys got me there. Fine, fine. B, <laughs> we especially know you're going to be late when you make tweets saying, you swear you're going to do it by this day. <laughs> and sure enough, um, I, 
uh, let you guys down here to this week again. Not once, but twice, maybe even thrice. You know, I don't even know if you want to count the mulligan that I just deleted. But we'll, but yeah, we were originally supposed to record Thursday. Um, uh, Jordan Guescos, he's got a kid who had an ear infection, and I sympathize with that. Not because, you know, he's got a baby and uh, it's easy to sympathize with babies unless you're a sociopath. But I actually just had an ear infection myself, getting over it with some antibiotics, which is making the rolls a bit difficult. Uh, but I was like, you know what? It's all good. We'll push the podcast to Friday. I'll get my normal Thursday night rolls in. Well, I got my Thursday night rolls in. Something happened. But on Friday, uh, you know, something that happened that probably wouldn't have made a Friday podcast ideal anyways. And again, the universe was doubling down to make sure it wasn't going to happen on both ends, uh, because uh, Jordan lives out in Illinois, and a tornado hit. A tornado watch hit his area. Power went out, storming like crazy. Him and his family stuck in the goddamn basement. <laughs> like, I mean, like, oh man, I felt so 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 awful. Uh, but like, he's he's doing. I think he's doing good. I got to check my message actually. Jordan, let me know you're doing okay, buddy. Uh, but yeah, so it just wasn't going to happen, uh, folks. And like, I was honestly like, even if nothing that happened, I don't know if I was in a sort of podcast. So it really was, uh, it was really working against us on both ends there. Um, I wasn't in sorts of podcast cause, uh, I think knock on wood, hopefully not. I'm trying not to over dramatize it, but I do need to be honest about these things and not stubborn. Like I normally am. And I compound my injuries and make them worse. Like I normally do. And, uh, you know, of course, your old boy, uh, you know, I think I'd, I might have just re-triggered the old post-concussion symptoms. I've been pretty symptom-free for about two years, been talking about that on this podcast. Finally, you know, getting things in order with work, my health. After last year, especially, it was a lot of different health stuff last year from surgeries, broken hands, autoimmune scares, cancer scare at one point. Finally getting my shit together. Um... Coach at Extreme Couture talking about putting a rank on me because I'm very anti-rank guy. It's been you know, even for Neil Melanson, and Neil Melanson's an anti-rank guy. And I look at him like a father figure, my catch wrestling coach. He's not very much a rank guy, but would rank his guys with stripes to kind of give them a place in the community. So when we go roll and compete in grappling tournaments in certain rooms, we would know and be able to state our place. And it also looks good because you know he was one of those that didn't give out ranks very easily, so it made him look good when. A guy, you know, was a blue, purple, or brown and was rolling like a much higher rank than that. Um, but I've been finally talked into even getting ranked. And the ranking class, or they try to give ranks out certain times. Uh, and one of those times are coming up. You know, they track everybody's attendance, how they're doing, how they're doing in class, whatnot. And I was told it pretty much to go next week. Be a good idea. And uh, me being self-deprecating Dan's like, whatever rank I'm going to get, it, I'm not going to be good enough for it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm still very behind on my geese. I may confidently say I roll at a purple belt level, which is sad to say. I should be rolling higher than that for someone who's been grappling since 07. Um, I, I'm confident to say I'm a, you can throw me in there with any any purple belt and I'll, I'll be just fine. And no one will accuse me of not being one. But in the gi... My grip knowledge is very bad, so I'm really trying to get those classes in, even when I'm not feeling well, which was probably a bad mistake because I go to class on Thursday, and of course, in Dan Tom fashion, I'm usually rewarded by the universe by saying, you know what, instead of staying home, I'm going to be lazy, I'm going to work hard, I'm gonna push through it, mental toughness, goals, all that stuff. And I pretty much, and especially with me being you know, self-deprecating and Dan and, oh, you know, I just... 
you know, too tough for my own good at the same time as well. Um, I every I just get every tough guy, big guy, good skilled guy combo of two of those three or three of those three. I got them all. Uh, retard strength Jake Shields guy who doesn't get tired. Got that guy. Like I was like I was just getting my shit pushed in for the first. Time. Get your, sh- your shit pushed in. Take a shot for today to play the protecting Night podcast. Uh, games. I always quote that, but no, I, I really got my shit pushed in. Like it was, like I said on my Instagram story, it was like the it was the shower scene from American History X, pretty much. Like I was like, I can't get to this class. I'm like I'm Derek Finyard, scrubbing down the showers, and in walks the fucking yeah. It was bad. <laughs> and uh, then after that was an hour of gi where we do like 50 minutes of technique. Well, not really 50, it's supposed to be like 45, and then we'll do five five minute rounds. So we always run over the hour. But this time we didn't start our five-minute rounds until almost the end of the hour. So it was pretty much almost like an hour and a half class. And I'm usually good about making it through all the rolls, but maybe it's because of the, you know, running to the end of the antibiotic cycle that I just finished with the ear infection. Again, tying this all together and apologize ahead of time. I'm going to try to make this shorter, guys, but it's going somewhere. Um, I'm just fucking tired out. And so it's round four or five. And uh, go on my buddy Don, who actually just got his purple belt, well-deservedly so. He's been at that level for a minute. Shout out to Don. Um, and I'm going with Don and it's probably, you know, it's probably one of the better rounds I'm having in the sense of like, at least that I'm on top for the majority of the round, but I'm so fucked up that I'm like thinking about tapping out and quitting, even though I'm holding top positions. Like that's how just tired and out of it and like dizzy. And I was, it just was beyond like being exhausted and out of shape, which I am out of shape and I was exhausted, but it was something different, right? Um, and you hear about that, right? The, the, I think Luke Rockhold, Wyman was the popular one. They talk about, well, your fighters talk about antibiotics really fucking them up. I can see why. And um, and it was one of those things where, like, I was in top position. I was so, like, t- I didn't tap out or give up. But what I did, too, was, like, you know, I don't know what the position was. But, like, I was riding. And I was even probably, like, a leg drag on top, right? Like, it's, like, it's, it's a very, very, like, side control almost. Uh, I guess for the layman term there. Uh, but yeah, I was like in a leg drag position on top and I literally just fall back to my guard like that. You know, you're watching that fight and the guy's doing well and all of a sudden, maybe it's an Anthony Pettis-like character or something. Not picking on Anthony, we'll get to that fight. Uh, not that much to talk about at this point, but like, you know, and all of a sudden they're just, they're rolling to their back and their guard. Like, oh, what the fuck's going on? Is he tired? Oh shit, is he hurt? Oh, is he quitting? Oh, is it two of the three? Is it three of the three? What's going on? Oh, no, the momentum change is happening. That was me. I was that guy that you scream at the TV, except the much more lower level version of that. <laughs> and I'm falling back and Dom gets on top of me as he should. But even he knows something's up. He's like, dude, you all right? I'm like, I'm fucking out of it, bro. And he's like, dude, take the rest of this round off. It's not worth it. Like, don't. Don't do this to yourself. I'm like, I'm sorry, man. I'm like, oh, don't even worry. And you don't, of course, being a great partner. So I sit out for the whatever the minutes left of that round. Final round comes up. Everybody's scrambling to grab their partner. And of course, like musical chairs, there's one guy left without a partner. It looks he's like a white belt and it's like, looks like he's looks like he's about in his 40s, older guy. And he needs a partner. I'm like, dude, I'm sorry, man. I'm dead, dead, dead as shit. Uh, you know, um, uh, if you need a partner, I'll go with you if we want to roll light. If you can't find anybody, otherwise I'm dead as shit. So he turns around and he sees that everybody's been partnered up already. He turns back at me like a sad kid on Christmas Day. And I'm like, all right, kid, even though this guy's older than me. And I'm like, I'll go with you. Just uh, let's keep it light, like you said, and, and uh, I'll be able to give you your work. But I just won't be able to give you much. He's like, no, 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 thank you, man. All right. So then we go, and I don't know if it's because, you know, uh, 
again, I, I'm unranked, so uh, technically in Gi, even though I've trained over at Gracie Technics, trained with you know, Fallis. And I just never let anybody rank me, and I've never, to be honest, I've never rolled consistently enough to be ranked, let's be honest. Uh, I rolled in a Gi consistently enough to be ranked, I should say that. Um, so I actually just sport like a no stripe, like just a plain ass white belt. It's funny. And it actually fucks with a lot of people's egos. And, and now it's kind of caught on to where like just the other last week, like this dude from the amateur fight team, like he was kind of yelling out, hey, don't trust that guy. He ain't a white belt. Don't let that fool you. Because I think I got him like the week before or something. And I'm like, oh shit. All right. Secret time. Not that I'm trying to get the jump on people. I actually feel bad. It fucks up their ego because they see some nerdy fucking dude like me just fucking up their world. But the problem is it works against me more often than not especially when I'm not in, in shape enough to contest the situation. And that situation is not just the white belt, but more importantly, because even in Nogi this happens, and there's no, there's no belts in Nogi. They don't know what I am or what I'm not, um, or, or perceived what I am or what I'm not in this case, right? But they see me, and again, because I like to pass on, I like to invite you guys into my world of racial stereotypes, right? <laughs> and if sportscasters call black dudes explosive, what do they call Asian dudes like myself? Unassuming, say it with me now. Unassuming, all right. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, man, the stereotype is real, you know. Because I actually talked about it at class with some uh, other uh, my training partner, longtime training partner, some are pro fighters, uh, wrestlers, etc. And they happen to, but the common thread of us all, we're all Asian. Uh, American Pacific Islanders, so we, we very unassuming, and it's it's so it's fucking it's hilarious every time, and it's okay when you're like them and they're like pro fighters or wrestlers and very seasoned, and I was seasoned with them at one time, not so much now, so it's, it's a lot more work for me to contest this, but and I'm a good role a partner, I'm super technical. When I'm dominating somebody, like I don't even go for the submission. It's not even fun. Like I want them to work. Like I'll give submissions to the I'll give positions to the person. Um and usually I would hear with the white belt, but one this guy was being really I know he's being really aggro. We start going, I'm like, didn't we just say light roll? Like, did he not just see me laying over there like Leonardo DiCaprio from the fucking Revenant, like barely alive? Like what does this guy think I got? <laughs> And he's fucking going, and he's a 40-year-old dude, too. So I know, I'm like, you're pretty strong than you are. I don't know if, how much of this is old man strength or the fact that you're just going fucking hard. And the best part is, is that I, especially since I've been back, I haven't gone above 65 to 70% in a roll where most guys are going 75 to 90, some 100 when they shouldn't be. So uh, it makes me feel, yes, that makes me feel extra better about myself that I'm just using old man technique to fucking get my way, survive the storm, and then just take over late in rounds and just dominate position. Yes, that's great. Yes, that's what I go for. And that's what I did here. So usually I would let the guy work, but in this case, I'm just like, fuck, this guy's spazzing out. But even then, I'm still feeling bad. So like, I'll, you know, do my half guard sweep. I pushed him out. But even then, I feel bad where I'm like, well, since I'm not going to submit him, I'm not going to be a dick and suffocate him with my gi from mount and my heavy hips here. So I'll dismount to a side guard, let him walk his legs to me. I'll go north-south, come around the other side. Then I'll let him get his half guard. Maybe I'll push him mount again. But in this case, I actually let him retain his full guard because the skill level was just so different that it, he wasn't going anywhere. Um, I'll give him the illusion of submissions. The problem is... These fuckers, these fucking white belts, where every round's their UFC, you arm them with a couple of submissions. They think they're fucking Clint Eastwood and are, you know, just like the cowboying up, going for everything, even when it's not there. Which is fine, except for the fact that I'm really tired, my guard's a bit down, and there's a gi, which 
I got to admit, I'm still getting used to with the grips and whatnot. I'm good at defending grips, um, but you know, guys that are good grips can really fuck me up there. That could be the real difference maker. Now, this guy doesn't have the technique, so I'm not really respect, respecting his grips that much. Like he is grabbing a lapel, but I'm in his guard. I'm really based out. I'm, I'm squared up to his hips fairly well. He's not really having anything. The problem is though, he was able to use that lapel leverage to really get some umph on his knee and leg. I don't know what the fuck he was going for. But he got some umph and need me right in the fucking ear that I got the ear infection, turning it a bunch of colors and just kind of like rocking me. And the worst part is the motherfucker didn't even apologize. You know, you get knee in the head all the time in grappling. That shit happens. Yes. That's not his fault. He doesn't know that, you know, I, I have, you know, passed with head issues and head trauma. Uh, that's not his fault. Sure. That shit happens all the time. Sure. That happened to me last week when I was going with a brown belt twice. Sure. Thankfully, it wasn't as hard in that brown belt pack because he's a fucking human being and a decent one but just a human being is the only prerequisite here to acknowledge you just need someone in the fucking head and he apologized like you should because you acknowledge shit unlike people who don't use their signals or ride the right lanes all those people can go to hell because they they're probably shitty people in real life i judge people from the way they drive and anyway that's another rant for another day and uh this guy's probably a motherfucker that probably doesn't use his turning signal either because he's in his own world he didn't even realize he needed me he's still like rolling and i'm just sitting there i stopped rolling at that point i'm just sitting on my base he's not gonna sweep me fucking piece of shit anyways and uh and there's a mad dog in him and he goes what oh i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm like what the fuck is wrong with you dude he's like, i'm sorry i didn't mean to do that and the round rings, and I'm just fucking, yeah, symptom, symptom city, folks, uh, since then. Uh, no throwing up, thankfully, just anger, you know, looking up shit like that and just realizing maybe why, <laughs> why I am the way I am and maybe why I'm not, you know, the best person to be around. And, uh, yeah, these things really change you. Um, personality change, irritability, impulse control, anger, just... All these things, and uh, I'm trying to <laughs> not go on a rant. Tain myself even now. I think I'd be calmed down. I'm still a bit stewed about it. Um, because, yeah, the original concussion was back in 2015, and it's been a long fucking road. Um, losing jobs, losing loved ones, friends, social lives, um, financial securities. Yeah. And I'm in a really good place now, despite all that, luckily. And I'm grateful that I was able to parlay me losing a job because of these, you know, these symptoms that can happen when one just gets hit once, even by someone who's just some 40-year-old fucking schmuck. Much less the pro fighter for the knockouts that we all, myself included, get excited for, folks. Not that I needed this reminder after this four years of fucking struggle, but yes, it is a reminder and I'm not trying to project this on you. I apologize for ranting. But perhaps I guess what you guys can get from this is just a reminder for hopefully that it doesn't ever have to happen to you for you to get this reminder that it just takes one shot to really fuck with someone's life and kind of alter and change it. And I was already having a kind of a tough week in the old upstairs before for other reasons. And I already have some things I was working against, and I already still have some remnants from that first concussion from these glasses to sensitivity to light that I'm probably going to be stuck with for life, and that's fine. But it is, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie, pretty goddamn scared when I get these symptoms coming back after two years. And I'm hoping stuff like nausea when I look at my phone and certain things like that go away. Like I sat down to do the podcast last night, guys, 
And just looking at the screen got me too nauseous. I just laid down. I just was sleeping from early last night to today. Slept until like noon. Woke up, got some things done, ate super healthy. Uh, realized I shouldn't be drinking caffeine for a couple reasons, especially with the the concussion symptoms back and making my sensitivity for that again, which makes life real fun. You know, back to strict eating, no caffeine, no alcohol or anything like that. And, uh, yeah, it just, uh, yeah, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. And I'm hoping, um, that my power bar, my proverbial power bar, cause guys, when you get a, it's like a, a video game when your character's at a hundred percent after I got the concussion, my power bar was at like 30 to 40%. So that power bar is indicative of your life in a video game. What I'm talking about is, is indicative for your energy to do things in a day. You know, some people have much higher power bars, really active people and shape people. They're going to have a higher power bar, right? I'm just talking about if everybody arbitrarily, the human average is at 100. Mine was at 30 to 40. And I've been able to work it back up to even now being symptom-free, and I use air quotes saying that, I still only feel about 80% of my normal of what I used to be able to do in a day before my vision kind of starts going, my head kind of starts, eh, and then it's time to go to sleep. Um, that's another reason why I'm most frustrated that I can never get things done. Or if I seem like I'm a procrastinator, it's like it's not even that. Like I have no fucking life. I don't take any days off. I work my ass off. But... There are certain things, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, sorry, I'm rambling on here, guys. I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna push on. I'm already 21 minutes, but yeah, it, it really just fucked me up and I, I probably shouldn't be talking about it so openly. Um, you know, you know, it's like, you know, I, I losing one corporate job because of these issues, you get, you get scared and you know, in my head, I'm like, Oh, what's going to happen. But you know, the truth is these symptoms are so real that it doesn't matter what I admit to or what I don't, if it starts to affect me really bad or gets really bad, like it does before people will know, unfortunately. Um, but I'm looking on the bright side. It doesn't feel as bad as it did the first time around. And I feel improvement from yesterday already. That being said, the worst concussion symptoms kind of happen like months after the incident. Like that's when I got like where I couldn't drive and got the really bad ones. So knock on wood, send me your positive vibe folks that this shit doesn't return for me full force. Um, that this is just a stinger of sorts. Uh, you know, the concussion version of a stinger. Um, but yeah, good vibes. And hopefully, uh, I'm just going to be able to still get stuff done. After UFC 242, I'm taking two weeks off, but in between then, I'm going to have to get two breakdowns in before that, because I'm still going to have some analysis coming out while I'm on vacation, so there's still a lot of work done in these next two weeks, so I'm going to try to balance it, folks. I may not do, depending on how I feel, we'll see how I feel. I probably should, even if I feel good, to be honest, I probably should do this anyways, that's why I'm verbalizing it to you, so that there's a point to this rambling. I'm still going to do a breakdown episode this week for the Shenzhen China card and, of course, my analysis and this and that. But I'm pretty much going to save my proverbial power bar, my energy. I don't know where it's at right now, folks, what it's resetting to. But I'm just going to save that, obviously, for my work there at MMA Junkie. Thank you all for supporting that. And I work with great people, and we work in an industry that <laughs> deals with, uh, is aware of head trauma. So uh, whether it's a smart move or not, I feel like... Um, I have an onus, if not for some great cause. I'm not trying to 
be the champion of flat. I'm a, a non-popular fucking nobody. I'd know that. I'm not trying to be some champion of some fucking cause. That doesn't mean I can't be an av- advocate for it. But more importantly, I got to be an advocate for myself here. And I haven't been shy about my story before, and I've been able to flip it to a positive. But yeah, I'm going through some shit again, it feels like. And fuck, man. If you're if you're in there and you're doing kickboxing or jiu-jitsu, just be a good fucking partner. Don't be that person, man. And even if you cash a bet and or whatever it is, or you're cheering because your guy won, take some time and wish wish some good vibes for the guy that just or the lady that just got knocked out. Um, this shit can change your life, folks. Anyways, all right. Sorry about that. Twenty-four minutes. That wasn't much better, Dan. Um, but I felt a little more. I felt that was a little better than than this was a better <laughs> version than you guys would have got. So yeah, long-winded apologies. That's what's been going on with me, and that's why we're getting kind of a a different podcast here. Um, anyways, uh, shout, shout out to Jordan. Uh, we're gonna get him back on. And UFC two forty-one went down. Not a ton to say, folks. Um, a lot has been already kind of been said and been been broken down. Uh, Miocic beat Cormier. I was I was wrong on that one, amongst many. Uh, at least on the main card, I just got wrecked on the main card here. Um, speaking of head trauma, I mean that was the, you know I I spoke about this. Shout out to uh, Matt and Kendrick. I spoke about this on the Slip and Dip podcast. Go subscribe, follow to them. Uh, at Slip and Dip Pod, uh, Slip and Dip Podcast. I was talking about this as far as a recap. My storyline from this wasn't so much what's next or this or that. Um, like I, I agree with people saying it was a bad fight, that it was a lose lose for Cormier. But I'm also one of those people that, that, you know, don't feel I'm not. It's not an argument, a hill I'm trying to die on. But I don't feel like you know it, it affects Cormier's legacy too much because. Either way, he's still a double champ, and either way, he's still going to have that Jones asterisk. And whether you're a, a Cormier lover or hater, a Jones lover or a hater, that DC Cormier point of contention is the highest point of contention. It is the most important asterisk, no matter what your opinion is on it. And if you would have knocked out Stipe, that wouldn't have changed it. So that's kind of why I say that. I wrote gravity question mark here. Uh, one of my only notes for the recap, because I'm not, yeah, not going to spend too much time on this. Um, I think punching up. Really wore him down. He was able to throw that pace. And I do believe Cormier is able to fight tired better. Especially if it was grappling. Which was their initial game plan. So, you know, it was to take it long and grapple. So, my, my, my prediction of a Cormier decision and outworking him through grappling didn't look too crazy as far as on paper. I guess they agreed with me there. But Cormier took it in a different direction. And he admitted it took fault to it, but I don't think he realized he was doing it mid, you know, midway through because between rounds two and three, he's asking his corner, am I winning? And that's normal, but it's also indicative of, of some trauma going on. Cause you just, you don't remember. And, um, you know, Alex Caceres versus, uh, Edwin Figueroa, I think, where he's just like, it's the third round and Caceres thinks it's the second round. Cause he got knocked down and almost out in the first so it reset his he reset his brain. So round two is round one for him, and he's calling John Crouch a liar. You know, go watch that fight. That's the extreme example, but that's what I thought of. Sure enough, he goes out and loses. So sucks for him. Good for Stipe. Um, this fight, I was I was definitely wrong about Nate Diaz defeating Anthony Pettis. I was happy to be wrong. See, it was Nate Diaz, and I do like Nate Diaz, but I don't know if it's just the contrarian in me. Like I'm like I hey, I'm always on the wrong side of like the really popular fights, which suck because it's those fights where everybody turns into a fucking 
You know, like, it just, whatever. It brings out the worst in people. The Khabib Connors of the world, the Masvidal, uh, Askrens of the world. And the worst part is, like, I'll be, like, the guy picking these guys when no one was picking them. And fans of them for however many years, but just maybe think that particular matchup might be a bad matchup. Go the other way on it. And all of a sudden, not only are you wrong, you're, like, an asshole because you don't like this guy. Like, motherfucker. I didn't see you tweeting about this guy, you know, fucking five fights ago. None of y'all cared who fucking Masvidal was. Fucking Johnny come late, least. Anyways, and, you know, and I love Nate Diaz. And that's going to change change it, but my contrarian ass just can't stand it when it's just like, oh, of course, Nate Diaz is the guy to like, you know, whatnot. But no, there, there wasn't any of that. I, I had legitimate things in my analysis. And even though I was really wrong and, and be the first to admit it, um... I don't think I do stand by my analysis. I mean, Nate Diaz was is, is not the best kick checker. And he just goes out there and checks the kick. He fights completely against types wrestling. He's doing terrible in the boxing. Like these are the kind of fights I usually like will feel so good about and then it'll be like like the read will feel good about. It, this is why I don't feel like uh, you know, I, I don't like feeling good about a read. People like, "Oh, he's riding the fence." Like, first I'm not riding a fence. Even in my more quote-unquote riding the fence predictions, I still show a ton of work and a research put more work than you motherfuckers criticizing do, and I still put enough of a hardline opinion to piss off both sides no matter who I pick. And believe me, I do, folks, and you don't have to interview these people. I do. Uh, maybe not so much anymore now that I'm on the radio show, which is, you know, probably maybe maybe a good thing for my analysis. You know, I know that that's affected my analysis and we'll talk about a bit about the objectivity and in interviewing. That's been a, a subject this week. And uh, shouts to a colleague there, Luke Thomas, uh, put out a good video on, on that. Uh, but yeah. Um, anyways, back on uh, on the analysis. But yeah, I. I, I you know, I still stand by the analysis of that. It wasn't that, you know, and again, even in my analysis, when I'm laying out how the other person wins, of course it was pressure. My thing was just, you know, we don't see Nate Diaz do the stand switching. When he comes out, what's the first thing he starts doing? He starts stand switching. I'm like, God damn it. Just, you know, I mean, just, I mean, who could have guessed that? You know what I'm saying? Who could have guessed that? Uh, people picking Nate Diaz are going to tell you they guessed that, but really there wasn't, the evidence really spoke different. And if you were picking Nate because of pressure, good on you, you were right. I didn't did not give credence to that at all. That was the way he was going to win. I just felt the kicking and the boxing, uh, Pettis was going to do it. And really, even before he got that leg check, check, Anthony Pettis really wasn't fighting that well anyways because of what Nate Diaz was doing. So I actually don't put too much emphasis in that leg check either way. People are using that for their argument. Like, I told you. I told you. Like, first of all, Nate's never done that shit before. He's done really shitty leg checks, and there's purposes to him that, you know, analysts like myself uh, have been really kind enough, to, you know, uh, and others as well, have a, kind enough to kind of kindly pad that theory uh, to give him the benefit of the doubt. And in that sense, it wasn't wrong. He was doing something with it. But both guys were fairly off balance in that exchange, if you look at it. Uh, Nate falls and stumbles too, but just obviously Anthony got the worst of it. And that doesn't take anything away from what Nate did. I'm not trying to. I'm just saying it, it's what it is. People trying to hang their argument either way, which is what I had a problem with going into the fight. People trying to hang their argument either way on something that evidence was so clear on. If you want to say Nate Diaz is going to win because of pressure, that's fine. I just couldn't bite on it for a guy that's coming off a three-year layoff and really has seldom barely changed changed his style. Like he was, everyone was highlighting the clinch stuff. Like he's always had the clinch stuff. Um, I talked about that in the, in, in my breakdown before too, you know, uh, but so I, I do 
stand by the analysis, but boy, was I fucking wrong because he just made me and everybody else who, you know, broke down his game previously eat our words. Now, what I will give credit to as far as people's analysis, I did hear, you know, or see as far as tweets or some podcast people talking about Nate's fragility. Props to those people who weren't just picking Nate uh, because it was cool, or weren't just picking Nate because, not just because it was cool, you like him, but yes, you were smart enough to see the pressure. Not even just for that. If you were one of those people that were even talking about the fragility, props to you, because that was a weird thing, right? Like, does Pettis break? Like, does he quit? Like, I, you know, you could look at it like he quit in the Ferguson fight for sure, but I don't really blame him for it. He pushed through it once before and got stopped. Um, and he's going against a guy like Tony, uh, Tony Ferguson, um, you know, and, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, even in this fight, like, shit, dude. Like, he's like, oh, Pettis broke. I'm like, did he? I'm like, yeah, I could see a part where, like, he quote-unquote broke, right? You see a part where he got tired. Okay. I can see a part where he got hurt. And, by the way, I even tweeted, I thought the fight should have been stopped at the third round. But even though he was tired, quote-unquote broke, and could have just went down from all those knees to the fucking head and the fight should have been stopped who kept fighting and you know arguably earned most control time he did all fight in that round third and final round anthony pettis did so that's why i was saying the temper the he quits angle for your reasoning that he's gonna lose or just your analysis of that fight because it's tricky right it's tricky. Like, yeah, we see him. Maybe he's not a good look in the corner for the Ferguson fight or this or that. or. But he keeps going. You know, he got his nose broke. He was getting told up by Thompson. And then he got the knockout, right? So it's just it's a hard guy to get a beat on. So it was weird to say the mental or the breaking thing. And that's why I just want to give props to the people talking about Anthony Pettis' fragility. I did mention that, but I also kind of wrote it off as... Maybe it was truth to what he said about the weight cuts because the broken hand was at 45 and the other broken hand was at 55, right? In that more short notice fight camp again with Ferguson. So I guess I was being a little too forgiving, but, you know, then the rib popping out and um, the foot, like, yeah, man, he just, there is no biological free ride. And Anthony Pettis, uh, it's clear he's paying for it, man. Even if you don't want to, even if you're someone that's okay, you know, you want to give him the benefit of the doubt like myself and say he ain't a quitter. In fact, you could argue that he's a fucking warrior. That's fine. That still doesn't mean his body's going to hold up. So not just props to y'all who picked Nate. Props to y'all talking about his fragility. Um, but yeah, I, I was I was dead wrong on that. Uh, all right. Apollo Costa, you Romero. Again, I, I was wrong here from the outcome, but at the same time, how are we supposed to know? One guy has a sample size that tells you one thing. The other guy has a sample size that doesn't tell you anything past a certain round, which is Paulo Costa. And if we stereotype those guys, oh, the bully will get tired. And even me, I, I've been defending Costa's bulliness, whether I'm picking for him or against him. Uh, you know, saying he does things like he goes to the body, he faints, he does these, these really good things that you like that gives me hope when he sees that third round, but his defense was the thing. And his defense looks somewhat improved, but just the fact that he was able to really just take the shots and keep going was the most impressive thing. I mean, this guy is just a pressure-fighting fucking monster. My opinion, Apollo Costa going forward, I'm not saying I'm going to pick him. Uh, that I'm not, I'm saying that I'm not saying that I'm going to pick him or not going to pick him over Rob Whitaker out of Sonya winner, but I will say that I thought either Adesanya or Rob Whitaker would just tool Bohachinha 
if they're going to give him to him within the year. But after seeing this, it's going to temper that opinion. I'm not saying I'm picking either way or not picking either way. I'm just saying it's a lot closer than I thought before. But that was a great fight. I didn't get a chance to go back and watch this one. I only went back and watched Nate and Anthony. Uh, and I was going to watch the top three. But, again, with some, some other stuff happened this week. Like, man, I started the week off good, too, because I'm like, oh, it's, a UFC. it's the first UFC-free week. I know I still got Bellator and Contender Series to cram for. But, God damn, I got to, like, give myself something, right? Can't, maybe I got to spend, like, one Sunday being fucking normal. It's been forever since I did the, the last one. So I go hiking, and that was good. And, uh, you know, saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood the night after that. And then, of course, just a bunch of shit kind of happens. And, you know, some uh, personal and then also professional. Could get some extra work thrown on, which is fine. Totally cool. By the way, thank you guys for checking out those extra articles I put out this week. Well, you dug that little love triangle analysis. But, like, yeah, it was just one of those things where I'm like, this is why... And I didn't even take a day off. Like, that, even on Sunday where I was like, I'm May free at, you know, 7,000 feet above elevation. Like, I still ended up outlining a breakdown and watching footage that night. Like, I don't even really take days off. But, like, it's funny. Like, I can't even, like, do fun things or, quote, unquote, take some time off during the day without, like, immediately falling behind. If you're like, Dan, you need to turn off from work. That's your problem. And it's true. I don't turn off. But it's like, this is why I don't turn off. Because the second I turn off... The fucking, I'm, I'm, I'm behind again. And now I got fucking head bullshit trying to work against me. I'm sorry, folks. I'm pushing through. I didn't get a chance to watch this one back. Uh, one of the fights I got right, Sadiq Youssef defeated Gabriel Benitez. That was a... That was a fun one-rounder. Uh, a lot of decisions, but didn't feel like it on the card. Um, good on Sadiq. Hoping to see him improve. Uh, Derek Brunson, again, talk about fighting against type. He hasn't looked this good since, like, forever, since, like, his early UFC days. Um, against Ian Heinisch. Uh, good on anybody who was on Brunson there. Um, I was tempted to pick him up first, but then the more I looked into this fight, the more confident I got in Heinisch, and I had him in a lot of uh, little fun parlays that I did throughout the night, so that kind of crashed and killed all that. Um, thankfully, our one parlay did hit because everything else pretty much missed here. As far as recap, comma worthy defeated Devontae Smith. Holy shit. I gotta imagine that busted a bunch of people's parlays, right? That was a the big the, the juice of the night. The biggest dog on the card comes through yet again. San Hagen looking great over a Sun Sal. I mean, I'm not a pro poker player guy, so uh, pardon me if I brutalize this analogy, but like it was just so beautiful, and you could people could I could see maybe a more common eye giving Sanhagen crap for not finishing a Sun Sao who looked to be hurt, but it's so hard to look good against a Sun Sao for one, much less hurt him like that. Um, and he was doing a masterful job, but like when I was watching that sequence where you're thinking the finish is going to come, I was just loving the way he was playing. And like whether the finish comes here or not, I was saying to myself, I'm just loving what Sanhagen's doing. He's playing it perfectly, as far as. Going to the body again with punches, and then, okay, I'm going to get your attention back upstairs with punches to the uh, head, and then I'm going to kick to your body. But then I'm going to change it from a tie kick to the liver to a front teep to the liver. And he just, he was just, you know, attacking the body with like, from his left side, but with four different strikes. You know, front teep, tie kick, body jab, uh, body hook. It was just so beautiful. And, like, the poker analogy, I was thinking, like, Texas Hold'em, like, no matter what what he gets on the draw, 
you know, uh, fourth and fifth street, he plays perfectly. Whether it's a good draw, like in the Asuncao fight, or a bad draw, like his Alcantara fight, the first three cards that get laid down, I'm not sure if I'm referencing that right, folks. Is that the river? I don't know. Uh, but I know fourth street and fifth street, and those are the crucial ones. And no matter what cards he's getting, like he has his poker face on, he's playing the fucking hand accordingly. Um, good on Sanhagen. Casey Kenny comes up against Manny Bermudez. Uh, Bermudez didn't look great, man. I don't know. I thought he looked kind of sluggish in there, to be honest. I know they were saying Kenny was getting tired when Bermudez wasn't at certain points. I just thought Bermudez looked fucking sloppy. Uh, Kenny was doing his thing, man. He's, he's a scrapper. Let's see what he gets next. Drukar Close defeats uh, Christos Yagos. Uh, woo. Sweater. Sweat, man. But like I said, dude, he's just that, that dogged dude turns it around in the second round. He did there. Um, first part of the double K parlay. Hannah Cyphers defeated Jody Escobar. I don't. I didn't even really watch it. I was like doing stuff around the house, and it sounded like that was a good decision. I really didn't miss much. Kyung Ho Kang completes the double K parlay with a bit of a sweat with one leg over Brandon Davis. Um, not a great look for Davis, who I like, but thank you Kang for coming through and Sabina Matzo. Sabina. <laughs> By the way, shouts John John Rico's birthday. Uh, John John Rico's birthday shouts there. Be defeated Shayna Dobson. John John Rico's treating partner, Sabina Matzo there. Hope to see more of her. And I will leave that statement as that because, Dan, you are not going to go stay on target. Stay on target. You know, those are your favorite parts of the podcast. Before we get to Bellator results here, uh, between the week, of course, a lot of 241 fallout, a lot of media scrums, uh, things going on. Not sure why Covington Usman hasn't happened yet um, or what's going on there. I wrote a little article on how the three pairings of Masvidal, McGregor, and Diaz could be players, possibly, with one another. How those could come up. I'm not married to that idea, by the way. It was just a fun little fantasy thing. Um, where I pretty much prefer Masvidal. I favor Masvidal in every fight. <laughs> it's my gist of that. Um, but, um, but yeah, uh, McGregor, man, he had that interview with Ariel. And, of course, they don't touch on... The rape thing, which is, you know, I didn't spell it out in my article either, but uh, I did put that. That's what I think is keeping McGregor uh, from any bookings, first and foremost. But, um, yeah, which kind of brought up the talk that's been talked about a bunch, uh, especially by a colleague over there, Luke Thomas. I put out a really good video, and I, I, I thought it was really well said, man. You know, I know Luke can rub a lot of people the wrong way because he comes off very, you know, matter of fact or if he has a point, even if he's right, he'll, he's not shy to let you know about it. And that's fine. Luke's really smart. I like Luke. I agree with Luke more often than not. But I just think that is kind of uh, one of, you know, his strong personality is what puts off a lot of people. When I look in comments and I see, I'm like, why are these negative comments like this much people, I think it's a little bit of that, but I like this video that he did. Go check out his his channel if you haven't already, because he comes off very just straightforward and honest, even amidst his own things. And I don't know. I'm not here to say that I completely agree, or I'm trying to. Pre I'm just giving him credit where credits due. Uh, I like that he cracked open that topic, and I can kind of identify with it in the sense that. 
You know, I don't have a journalistic background, never claimed to myself. I know I think he said he claimed to call himself a journalist for a certain point in time and don't. I don't, but I do understand that predicament when you're doing an interview show. Now, my name wasn't on the show or this or that, but at the same time, you know, um, you don't you don't want to just shit on relationships, even if they're legitimate ones. Now, I know people come at Ariel because he's obviously a lot more... What's the word I want to use here? He he clearly goes for what's hot, right? He, uh, that's where his loyalty is, is what's hot that week, you know, his job. And, hey, I get it. You got to look out for yourself in this world. And it's got to be what's hot. And, and that's why a lot of fighters take homage with him. It's like, why would you forget about me? Whereas George and Goes is the reason why I and many love them and why I and many respect them is because... They've done a similar job like Ariel. They've done it for five days a week for the most part up till recently. And they've done it all organically, even when they had politics and things on their side and favors they could call in. I've seen it myself. These guys aren't the type to even use them, even if it's to their own fault or detriment. Like, they are that loyal of dudes. They don't take their relationships with the fighters that they built organically lightly. Um, And, yes, whether it's Colby or... You know, Ali, uh, even. Uh, we had him in studio a bunch of times. You get, you know, it's it's weird. It's like, you know, uh, you know, you know. Um, I don't know if it's weird or not. There's never any directives. I, I've never, I've always been free to ask whatever questions I want. But I'd be lying if in the back of my head goes, hmm, man. I know uh, the MMA verse will probably love to, this guy to get lit up by this. But one, I, I'm honestly usually ill-prepared because I'm usually running more cameras and stuff when I was in the show. And also... My stuff's more for analysis. I would try to come up with thoughtful questions when things would strike me, and I would I would want to ask them. But um, if you notice, I was you know my interactions with the interview were very limited. They were at the tail end, and most of the times, especially on those where Ali was, I wasn't even on the panel because Ali would want to sit with his fighter, which meant that I would kind of get bumped off the dais there. If you guys saw how we would do a shuffle. Um, so no one is, I don't know why I'm, I'm, I'm not, I hope I'm not coming off as defending because I shouldn't have to defend that show uh, or its ethics, which we're all above board. Uh, I can tell you. Um, but yeah, man, it is, you are a part of it no matter what spectrum you are. And I, I guess is the point that I'm trying to say. And it's, it is, it is crazy. You know, it is, it is, it is an interesting thing. Now I'm not one of these people who are like, and now crucify or now do this, now do that. Now, I don't know what the fucking answer is. I mean, it again, media is not my thing. I fell into this job by accident, uh, folks. But I do bring it up because I'm like, you know, it, it, it does, it, it can affect your job. I can see how it could affect a job as a journalist, even though I'm not a journalist and I've never been one. I do consider myself an analyst, even though that's kind of a made up job too, let's be honest, especially in MMA, right? But I do take it seriously for what it's worth. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've spoken about it here before, and, and, and I've spoken about it to my co-hosts, too, as, you know, and other people in this industry for advice who has to cover it, because you have to find that balance where your coverage to where you're dealing with these people, because even if you are having organic relationships, or even if you're not trying to cultivate a relationship, you're just trying to do your job, you can't help but, like, you know, like, your guys on the road, you're on the road covering these guys, you can't help but, like, at a certain point, right, like, develop a relationship you know i'm sure that that's what happens with a lot of journalists and their connections with people in the ufc or bellator or pr or whatever yeah i'm sure there's political gains and things that happen from it but some of them even if that's not the person's mo 
guess what? They're still going to make friends with people in the organization organically because they're traveling and covering the shows. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is I appreciate that dialogue being opened up and honestly. So, you know, shouts to Luke for that. But also, I guess, to the people and the gen pop who love to throw rocks and, you know, uh, MMA Junkie certainly is, is is not beyond reproach when it comes to getting rocks thrown at us. I, It's your right to throw whatever rocks you want to throw, guys, I guess, no matter what media person or source or whatever, Ariel or whoever. I guess all I'm saying is just try to stop for a second and realize, like, it's it's... It's not like, you know, everybody in the media is some kind of evil conglomerate that we're, like, working behind the scenes with these organizations to push these agendas and theories. And, like, we're just true people trying to do our job at the end of the day. And believe it or not, we actually really love this sport. Um, I can't speak for how everybody conducts themselves or how everybody feels. But I do just ask to kind of keep keep that in, in mind. Uh, but, yeah, that was... I didn't really buy it with the Conor McGregor interview. I didn't get it. You could see he kind of was, anytime he was lying or caught on lies and was uncomfortable and really not sincere, you could tell because he would speed up and kind of just start aggregating certain topics and examples and I kind of stuff that I kind of do on this podcast almost. Uh, not when I'm not trying to lie or anything, but like you just kind of get like, you know, your, your head's kind of squishy and you, just, you start kind of getting disjointed. And he was doing that. And I think for him... And his scenario that he was in, what they were talking about, I think that would that translate to in that case, uh, maybe some little insincerity and not so much truth. But yeah, I guess you didn't need me to tell you that. You probably didn't even need to watch the interview to know that was going to be the case. Um, but yeah, you really can't defend the guy. And I haven't been one to defend him. Hell, I wasn't even defending him when I fucking was, you know, dumb enough to pick him uh, going into that fight uh, with Khabib. But you look at the behavior and the possible drug use, and even though I hate that injury talk and bullshit, but let's just pretend for a second that it's not, you know, okay, maybe, hey, maybe the pick wasn't <laughs> that terrible, but I knew that I was doomed as soon as, as soon as, because uh, I submitted my stuff early that week, right? I even recorded stuff a week before. As soon as he starts showing up and it's fucking whiskey sales time and he's fucking <laughs> having his, like, little coke things or allegedly or whatever on stage like oh fuck I already knew where this was going I was already regretting my pick that week boy believe me and I'm worried that that might bleed into my Dustin Poirier uh, Khabib analysis because I got some of the shit for that pick and labeled as a Khabib hater um, even though I just thought it was a possibly a bad stylistic matchup uh, because of what I saw from the Michael Johnson fight Think what Michael Johnson was able to even do with guys like Dustin Poirier. Granted, it's a completely different matchup, southpaw versus southpaw and the perfect shot. There were reasons, but of course, now you couple that into the how many failed Tony uh, Ferguson fights where I've been the motherfucker, one of the first motherfuckers, and still only motherfuckers touting that's going to be the lightweight champ. He's the guy to beat Khabib. He is the worst matchup for Khabib, which I still believe, regardless of how I picked or how I do pick future matchups. I will be honest, you know, that overcorrecting the steering wheel thing we often talk about. It's like, am I going to overcorrect the steering wheel now because I've picked against, you know, Khabib so many, you know, so so many times there. Um, you know, does that? Oh, my worry that I'm going to look like Khabib hater where I just go into this, and even though Poye shouldn't be that big of a dog, and uh, if I do pick Khabib, you like I do with everybody, I will still give the chances 
and a legitimate, honest layout for how the other person can and could win. But it's like, am I just picking Khabib at that point? Because I'm going to be afraid to be called a hater. Because, man, that line looks off. And, man, I'm liking what I'm hearing and seeing from Dustin Poirier. And, man, we're back in Abu Dhabi, right? And, man, what happened the last time some... This lightweight goat, some 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 ruler of the division, were blowing all this smoke, and he was untouchable. What happened the last time that lightweight, a, a lightweight great, went to Abu Dhabi? Oh, he got upset. He got upset by a workmanlike fighter, huh? You don't say. And of course, if you follow Dan Tom Theory or read my past articles, the lightweight division died in Abu Dhabi back at UFC 112. Because we had, man, Benson Henderson, I don't give him enough credit that Nate Diaz fight was fun. Frank Yeager, you know, I, I love Frankie, but like we just had rematches, decisions, close decisions that could have gone the other way in some cases. Um, injuries, when we did finally have an excited guy like Pettis, you know, the injury stuff, the early, early bits of that we were just talking about, those early signs would start hitting during his title reign that derailed that pretty much right. For the most part, we get RDA, who has a nice quiet run, and he goes up to welterweight. And Connor does his fucking thing, right? I'm trying to imitate, but he really just kind of disintegrates the division a bit uh, in disarray. So, yeah, and then we have this, you know, Khabib, who beats Ally Quinta for a last-minute lightweight title. And then defeats a... Degenerate, uh, possibly drugged up, possibly injured, allegedly uh, McGregor, <laughs> and uh, that's our. And people talk about greatest lightweights of all time. They 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 already want to know he could be. So I don't know, man. I don't know. He's got to beat two people before I say that. And that is the interim champ. Dustin Poirier, and the real uncrowned champ who got to touch UFC gold before he did, and deservedly so, Tony Ferguson. So, I don't know, folks. We'll see when we get to that. But just a little little, little tease on that, guys. A little tease. Uh, speaking of post-fight shows, shout-out to my man Wes Wesley Colvin there, True UK fan. He's got a YouTube channel over there, at True UK fan on Twitter. He's been... Just talking shit and ranting and rambling. Wanted to give him a shout. I wrote Shaq Sacramento slap because Shaquille O'Neal posted a picture with Nate Diaz. And he put like, oh, Sacramento slap. Please. I know I have my own weird personal reasons for hating Shaq because he's the most over... He is the in and out burger of athletes. He's the most overrated fucking anything of athletes. Put that guy... I used to say as a kid, as a young Asian kid who couldn't get a look at the... Couldn't get the coaches to look at me at the basketball team. They look at all my black friends... Uh, but they wouldn't look at me, and uh, that was truth, by the way. I, I was actually in a black neighborhood at this time. All my friends were black, and we go and play basketball. And come junior high time, that's where, uh, <laughs> let's just say, Asian Dan and my buddies, we, we went different ways as far as the girl spurts, and I, I realized that when I wasn't getting looked at the basketball team. So, yeah, when I saw guys like Shaq who were just getting fucking, you know, the, the commentators were practically, like, just jerking off all over themselves talking about Shaq. And they're like, oh, he's so strong. He's so good. Oh, he's so... Foul for someone, uh, a, a little feather, a little ant landed on Shaq. A personal foul, send him to the line. Like, if he's so fucking strong, why do the refs baby this motherfucker 
and he still can't. And for as much as they baby him, why can't he hit fucking free throws? And that's where people will be like, oh, but Shaq hits that baseline turnaround jumper. I'm like, okay, fine. It's like he picked one fucking hard shot to fucking get good at. So when motherfuckers like me who use their eyes to watch uh, call him out for being overrated, he's like, bro, boy, I can hit the other shot. Anyways, fuck Shaq for calling it a Sacramento slap. And more importantly, not for being overrated. I have this for people that don't know. Um, I had an aunt that would take, she was like those people that would like handle celebrities when they would come in. Uh, I think the, the Lakers or whatever, when he was on there, they did like a celebrity basketball game uh, on the island. Uh, Shaq was there and they brought in orphans uh, for autographs. And it was like a pre thing. And like she waited like till Shaq was done eating. Like she didn't want to be rude. You know, it was a kind of like a, a real loose environment and there wasn't like cameras around, which is probably the reason why I did this shit. But, uh, and part of her job, she did like PR stuff as well. So, you know, she brings the orphans in. And uh, I don't know what the exact count was, but, you know, not a lot of, maybe more now, but, you know, not a lot of Mexicans, not a lot of, uh, or not a lot of Hispanic, not a lot of black. Uh, if we're, you know, playing the uh, what's least around, in it, what's what's least likely you're going to find around in Hawaii, you know? Or if you do find, like, some black, like, it's like, like the rock, it's like the Samoan, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, or whatever. And I don't know what this kid was, but there was only, like, one black kid in the group, and the rest were pretty much, like, for the most part, Asian Pacific Islander kids, right? Maybe a white kid in the mill here or there. Um, and no joke, fucking, she goes over and she's like, Wendy, and she's like, excuse me, Mr. O'Neill, you know? Uh, and she already knows who she is. Like, he's been handling... She, she was, like, his handler for the trip. He's like, oh, we have the orphans in town for the game. We're just wondering, before we get in their seats, if we, you could sign autographs. And uh, Shaq just kind of, like, looked disdain. And she was like, he kind of just came off like an asshole the whole time. And I always kind of had that theory. But I, I'm a Shaq hater. So, again, like, the Khabib thing, I can't say it. Because it's like, well, I already have all this ammunition and this case against me where, like, I'm clearly biased, right? So, I can't say that or I can't perceive that. But this person who doesn't follow basketball and deals with celebrities all the time was like, he was one of the biggest dickheads. And particularly for this reason, and he didn't want to do, sign the kids' things. Then he kind of like, like, like a kid himself, she was like, kind of tantrums, like, all right, I'll sign it. And he only signs the black kid and doesn't sign the other kids. And they were like fucking crushed, like sitting there like, what? Like they were actually basketball fans. And just a piece of shit couldn't do it. So I don't care if it'll fuck me up. I will fucking talk shit. I will bring that up to Shaq, call him a fucking piece of shit. And then I'll say Scottie Pippen's the best. And he'll be like, what the fuck does that have to do with anything? I'm like, I don't care. You suck. I don't give a shit because fuck Shaq. It's a piece of shit. Uh, anyway, sorry about that. I just wanted to share that with you. So even if you don't care about that situation and aren't won over, if you're an 8 Diaz fan, you should, be, you should hate Shaq just as much for saying Sacramento slap. Fucking idiot. All right. Um... Okay, fuck Shaq. That is taken care of. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, but anyways, uh, I... I and Connor, speaking of athletes, are just irreprievable and doing shitty stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, F Connor too, man. I, I, I really could care less. Um, I don't really care. Yeah. Uh, Jose Aldo came from more poor beginnings than McGregor. Um, McGregor was no poorer than me. I, I had to live, uh, I, I had to be on unemployment and work fucking, uh, construction jobs and dig ditches too. And that was the extent of McGregor's poverty. Oh, a bad neighbor, a bad neighborhood. I, 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 I've seen one of those too. Okay. I don't identify with that. Real poverty stories are coming from the fucking favelas like Aldo did. Um, so it's not even like, oh, it was great to see him 
come to rise. I'm so happy. F I could give a shit for him back when he was making the money. But anyways, I, I, I pick him in a fight, so that makes me not agree. Anyways, whatever. And F them all. I, shout, last shout, Mix Molly Whoppery. I'm going to give him a tweet here, too. I'll probably do it tomorrow, uh, Sunday. There's more traffic. But he had a great video called Downfall. Um, I haven't shouted his channel for a minute, so I want to give him another shout. Excellent video that kind of encapsulates much more articulate than my curse words and and Shaq, uh, you know, uh, whatever, uh, speaking out. Uh, Bellator just happened. Um, man, Karatanov, second round TKO. I was right about that heavyweight fight at least. Second round TKO, fortunately for me, Karatanov and everyone else involved. Mouthpiece gate might be the fucking focus point of that, which it shouldn't be. I don't think it should, but Matt Mitchell, man, was just checked out mentally. And you could just see it like, oh, it was bad. And you could just see it. Um, yeah, you can see that ending happen before it wasn't, like as soon as he was checking out. That was just really weird. And I don't even know if that one was a head trauma one or that was just more just mental I mean, we've seen Matt kind of check out, too. I said if he didn't get that finish first in the first, not even the first round. I actually said first few minutes. Like, past minute three, we're going to start seeing a shift. And almost exactly that. Body work and uppercuts, I said, too. We saw a bit of those, did we not? But, hey, I'm, I try not to get too high when you're right about them or too wrong. That's kind of a... I was talking about a shout-out to Head Kick Audio over there. I don't know if it was Steve I was talking to, who it was. But, uh, yeah, I was just saying, like, I don't know, man. I just, I don't get... I, I treat it like the fighters. You can't get too high or too low, whether I'm right or wrong. Like, I always laugh because I'm like, I always give myself shit like I was at the beginning. I'm like, oh, I always get these really big fights wrong and like the, the really popular fights wrong. And then like, and it sucks on the flip side when I'm reading like the, you know, the Anthony Smith Vulcan Olsemir's of the world, the Karatoff Mitrion's of the world. Like, I'll call these fights exactly to the round. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I should give myself more credit for this or at least, you know, if not, I, I still not, I'm not, not the kind of guy to, to, to remind everybody that I'm right. Cause I think that's kind of ugly, but like at the same time, I should probably for my own mental health, remind myself that I do get these right. <laughs> that I do know what I'm talking about from time to time. Uh, Minikoff defeated, uh, Tim Johnson, uh, or, uh, shout out to the MMA analysis there, as they call him, Timmy big Dick, it's their nickname. Alejandra Lara defeated Taylor Turner. Uh, Yaroslav uh, Amosov defeated David Rickles. Tyrell Fortune defeated Rudy Shackforth. Um, I fell asleep for mo most of the main card, guys. Uh, I watched the undercard while I was cooking, and then I ate. And then I don't know if it was Samoan fever, because I did have Portuguese sausage, eggs, rice, uh, kale juice, some micro broccoli with it. A little bit of liquid aminos instead of the soy sauce. So I did a little healthy take on uh, Portuguese sausage, eggs, and rice there, which you can get as a combo at McDonald's if you ever go to Hawaii. You know what they call Royale with cheese in France? Uh, <laughs> I'm getting there. But, uh, but yeah, so uh, timestamps. I probably should have warned you guys about that already. But, hey, anyways, you guys know uh, if you want to skip to things. But, hey, uh, but yeah, um, I, I fell asleep. So I don't know if it was a Samoan fever or the concussion and stuff, but I was like, dude, I am so... Like extra tired and fatigued again. Back to the energy bar thing. It's it's so real, guys. It's so real. It's been, so I just I cra I never nap, and I just crashed out next to old Benjamin who's passed out here on the bed. Like I I I was sleeping on the side of the bed that I don't even normally sleep on because I had a big pile of laundry. I was too tired to even move the laundry, fold it. I I slept just on next. to I cuddled the laundry like it was my body pillow. Like that's how tired I was. Um, and I just woke up for the main main event. But I did watch some undercard action. Conor Gracie got a, a submission there over Oscar Vera. I think that's the same guy who fought 
Um, his other, the other Gracie, when I was in Hawaii, uh, I don't know. Rochambeau Gracie. <laughs> what was his name? I don't know. God damn it. Sabahumasi Juan. All finishes, crazy card, by the way. Austin Vanderford was a, uh, by the way, first person trivia, first person to earn the elusive A plus from my contender series because he had to overcome adversity and got the third round finish and was, uh, I believe, underdog. Ricky Bandejas defeated, got him back on track. Ahmed Cayetelli, I don't know, just Bruce brutalized that name. Chris Dijonel defeated Mike Kimball. I can't even pronounce that, but I watched that fight. John Manley. Comeback win there. Submitted the black belt. Who's been submitted the four times now? And Tiago Hela. Connor Dixon. And my man, Nick Newell. It's good to see him win. Great post fight. Couldn't have gone any better for Bellator uh, in that sense. Um, contender Series. One more week. Thank you guys for joining us on that. It's been really fun with... Uh, John Morgan and Ken Hathaway, who's been the man behind the scenes. That guy's like literally producing a freaking TV show. Uh, those guys work so goddamn hard. You don't need me to tell you that, but fucking part of the heart and soul there at Junkie. We got plenty of other new hardworking faces as well. But uh, but yes, massive shouts to those guys. Um, and everybody at Junkie is just just. Way too kind. I, I don't. I don't deserve to be there, but 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 I am for whatever reason, and they accept me for whatever reason. So, yeah. All right, guys. That was the first uh, hour of the podcast. Um, let's save some editing. Let's let's break right in. I was just going to talk a little bit of uh, Quentin Tarantino here. Um, I don't know if we're ever going to do this top five, but I don't want to burn it. So I will give you some of my favorite characters, and kind of like I posted. On the thing, couple, only a couple of y'all responded, which I don't blame you. I, like I said, I was all over the place, and with being all over the place, I forgot to even tweet out the actual tweets for it. So I, I fucked up. But uh, I will give you some of my favorites. Uh, not all these are on the top five. I won't tell you which ones are and which ones aren't. Uh, my favorite Quentin Tarantino characters, and in relation, who parallels them in the MMA universe? Now, this was actually kind of fun. And hopefully I'll just give a couple to at least get that started. And you listeners can tweet at me. Maybe we can get some, we can get a thread or discussion going on the old Twitter. Um, just like when we did that that one that was pretty popular a couple years ago I did, which was the uh, UFC fantasy casting, which was fun. I think I had like, uh, so we like, Ed Harris as Frank Fertitta. I think we had like uh, Luis Guzman as Joe Silva. Like it was, it was fucking great. Um... So some of that, but um, but yeah, once upon a time in Hollywood, um, I'm gonna try to avoid spoilers, and I'm really gonna try not to be a Brendan Shaw by saying that, and then go right into obvious spoilers. But I will be dancing and prancing around certain things though, and some things that I wasn't aware of, and I'm probably the minority, and I'll explain what I mean, what uh, what I mean there in just one second. But just in case, I will give a spoiler warning just in case here. And if, uh, even though I'm not intending on giving any spoilers, but I'm going to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And if I start getting close, I will redo the spoiler warning. How about that? So if you want to avoid spoilers, continue to listen. But I just wanted to give a hard warning, you know? It's like you've, you've grabbed the cage twice. This is the hard warning. Um, I enjoyed this movie 
I just worry that I didn't give myself a chance to enjoy it as much as I could have. Like, for example, The Sixth Sense, if you don't, you know, spoiler alert from over 20 years ago, uh, if you don't know the ending of that, um, I, I didn't get the full effect because I forget how, but someone blew it. Someone blew that ending for me, which was harder back then because there wasn't any podcast and internet, right? Um, but someone blew it for me, the, the ending, where Bruce Willis is dead the whole time. So I didn't get that effect. I didn't get the M. Night twist. That's why Unbreakable knocked my dick into the dirt. That, and I like comic books. Or comic book theory, at least. Um, and so that twist knocked my dick into the dirt, because I missed the one that got him onto the map, right? Because uh, I knew too much. Whereas, I went into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I didn't know enough. And that's kind of upsetting to me because I know that Tarantino has a certain expecting of his audience. Uh, and I get that. And he is deserving enough to have that. But like everything, there has to be a line, right? Like, okay, you're not going to walk into Ass Busters 3 without watching Ass Busters 1 and 2. Okay, maybe that's not true. Maybe you probably, if there is such a movie called Ass Busters and they've gotten a 3. I'm guessing you could watch three without having to watch one and two. But you get my point there, okay? Pretty obvious. Not quite as obvious, but acceptable and more apropos. Um, Tarantino names off his films for a reason. Or numbers off his film, the ninth film, because he's only going to do two. Ten, and because they all exist within the same universe, which has become more and more apparent, right? Pretty apparent now. Okay. Not everybody's going to be that deep, but you have to at least know that much. You have to maybe, you know, you're not going to go back and watch Jackie Brown right before you go watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I'm guessing you should have probably have at least watched his entire catalog. Maybe not Death Proof, but his entire catalog, right? Okay, fair enough. I'll give you that. But this one, you really got to know history and other things. Now, I love nostalgia and... Whether it's nostalgia that was not a part of uh, my, my, my growing up, like Boogie Nights. I love Boogie Nights because I, like Tarantino, for whatever reason, was a, a, obsessed with the 70s. I love the style, the music, the looks, the cars. I loved it all, okay? I still do. So it's not beyond me to be able to connect with a genre that I wasn't a part of. So for people saying, oh, this is for people that are from L.A. and people from the, 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 that time. And I agree, people of that time are going to get more appreciation that, than me, a 34-year-old. Um, people of that time and grew up in California are going to get even more appreciation than people that were just of that time. Okay, that's fair. Uh, that's fine. You know? Um, <clears throat> but history, you know, and like, you know, sometimes it'll make you like things even more, like Stranger Things. People gave shit for Stranger Things 3. Too much nostalgia. They were leaning on it. Maybe that's true. Maybe that is the high point of Stranger Things 3. It was for me. Uh, but at the same time, even though I'm not going to praise Stranger Things 3 as a shit, I like the, the first two seasons better, I'm also not going to shit on it at the same time and say it was just nostalgia. Because I like the nostalgia, all right? I get it. And I'm also a big history buff. I love history. That being said... You should probably brush up on your Sharon Tate Manson family history. Now, I knew that the ranch and the Manson family things happened. And I, I was aware that it was going to be in, uh, kind of like Inglorious Bastards. And I don't think this is a spoiler alert, but this is probably the closest thing I will say to a spoiler. 
This was an a Quentin Tarantino alternate ending piece, right? Kind of like the uh, Inglorious Bastards. They do World War II, and he does his own take of history. Again, I'm cool with that, too. Like, I like The Watchmen. Like, that was one of my favorite things of The Watchmen. They did their alternate take on history. I am down for all that. But I, it made me regret, I'll just say, and for people that are watching the scene, because it's not even just one scene. I thought it was one scene. It's actually two scenes. And even reviews that I listened to, people that were quote-unquote clued in, even some of them missed the, te- the, the tension on one scene. They, they got the full tension on maybe the end, but they didn't get the full tension on another, another scene that happens. Because there's actual some even more hardcore, hardcore, hardcore history that I wasn't familiar with. So I kind of missed this is really good scene. It's still a good scene, and there was still tension. And I'm not even going to say where the scene takes place, but it just should be much more tension-filled, and I should have got so much more out of it if you know your history because there's this real cool little side story there. And even with the main history, and I'm, I'm speaking in very vague terms, and I apologize, and hopefully you all that actually did see the film can still follow along even so. Um, <clears throat> I wasn't familiar enough with it to be like, okay, where are we going with this? Like, it didn't... You know, like, some people are accusing characters of, like, the Margot Robbie character playing Sharon Tate. Like, what are we doing here? Because the movie drags on, and that's kind of the common criticism. And I get that, but that wasn't a big deal to me because I think that it drags on with a purpose. Not just the nostalgia and all those things, which I was game. Like, I felt like, maybe it was, you know, maybe it was a little bit of a buzz that old Dan Tom had walking into the movie. And uh, But, you know, I was enjoying the beginning part of the movie, like, the most. Um it was the end where it kind of like it didn't get me by surprise because we've seen Tarantino have these kind of endings and takes before, but it just didn't really do it for me. Um, and so two things everyone's saying is that it's slow and that it was really about Brad Pitt's character. I don't know. I disagree with those things. I love Brad Pitt's character, but I feel like it was meant to be about DiCaprio's character, and I feel like I was more impressed with DiCaprio's performance slash character at the end. Now, Brad Pitt's character is more likable. He's more fun. But that's Brad Pitt. Like, Brad Pitt is like that friend where girls are guys. We've all had this. Girls seem to keep track of this more because uh, they're more catty like that. But we've all had that friend who's like Mr. and Miss Popular. All the girls are guys like them. They can do no wrong. You can say the same joke or the even funnier joke and get a 2.5 out of 10 on the decimal laughter level, whereas this person can stumble through a joke half as good and have the whole room rolling because they're just that person. Like, that is Brad Pitt, and for the most part, that is Brad Pitt characters. Not demeaning Brad Pitt. I'm actually a fan of Brad Pitt. I'll defend Brad Pitt like I will defend the Tom Cruise's of the world where they're so volatile, not volatile in the sense of, like, their image. We have this image of him, but I'm like, hey, man, fucking Collateral and Last Samurai weren't bad. I don't care who I don't care who's gonna give me shit for it. I'll say it. And with Brad Pitt, like, hey man, he he did good in seven for being a rookie. And uh, you know, um, I still like things like uh, Fight Club. So so sue me. As typical as that sounds, fuck fuck it, sue me. I I think he does good for what he what he is. Um, and he does. But I don't think it's more than that. I think it's just like you know he gets written the funny lines. He's Brad Pitt. You know. Um, he gets to, you know, uh, beat up Bruce Lee, which really isn't a spoiler. And sadly, I went, like, super late where there's only, like, I thought I had the theater to myself and, like, two people actually rolled into the credits after I posted that. But, of course, like, they're quiet the whole time and they're laughing during the Bruce Lee scene. And I wanted, I know you guys are thinking, oh, here goes Dan Tommy. Here comes another Asian acting tirade thing because nobody really trumps that horn. And I'm one of the few people who brings attention to it, even though I'm not a race guy. Obviously, because I make fun of everybody, including Asians. 
Uh, and I'm all about that, by the way, which is why I hate even talking about that. But I do because it's just one of those things because nobody really talks about it, you know. And, uh, hey, I'm Asian American and I used to act, so it kind of affected me as well. And we all go to the movies, so fuck it. That being said, folks, I'm actually not going into that. I know you're all about to hit your fast forward. I'm actually not going into that. Cause I, I believe in it. Dan Tom was not offended. Um, like people like Nicolas Cage, regular white moviegoers were offended even, you know? Not even like martial art, not, not even Asians, you know? Of course, the family was offended how he was portrayed. But like, without giving too much of a way, like, I don't know. I was expecting it to be a lot worse. Um, the dude, I mean, people were like, oh, he played such a great Bruce Lee. Like, I mean, he did a good job at Bruce Lee. It's hard to find an Asian guy that cut with 0% body fat and then can do all the mannerisms. But at the same time, it was almost just like a comic book character of him. So I couldn't take it too seriously. Like it was, and, and that's probably how it was supposed to be made. And I guess the point of it is to show Cliff's character, who Brad Pitt's character is a stuntman to Leonardo DiCaprio. I guess it's supposed to show that he can, you know, be capable. Although, it's like I said, it's Brad Pitt. No matter what you give him, he's gonna he's gonna be able to sell to the audience. I don't. We have enough shirtless scenes of him on the roof showing his muscles and potentially even you know uh, killing his wife, which isn't a spoiler because they leave that not completely unturned. I know there's a director's cut floating out there where there's a bunch of extra scenes, and I imagine I hope there's more to his backstory. But that's another problem where like that was a major thing I wanted to learn more about and why this guy has a shady background. It could have maybe parlayed into his redemption story but i didn't really see it as much of a redemption story because we didn't really tell his story hence how the fuck is everybody saying this was about brad pitt i don't get that like he had a cool role cool i, I didn't really get much of an arc he was just kind of like like you guys remember true romance and his character there where he's the stone guy on the couch he's pretty much dude on the couch before because that, that movie hit before half baked he was brad pitt for all you don't know all y'all don't know he was the original like dude on the couch like, his his character in this, which I like, I'm not shitting on it by any means, but, like, his character essentially is, like, if that guy was a stuntman and we had to follow him around with his day job, but he has the same stoner personality. What? What's going on? Sure. At a ranch? All right. Yeah? Okay. Well, I'm Brad Pitt. How you doing there? Aldo Rain. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to, trying to zoom in my Brad Pitt voice there. But, yeah, it, you know, it, it's fine, but, like, I don't know. I just there wasn't an arc for me. Whereas like DiCaprio, like he's really doing like really good shit. Like I haven't seen since like Random Harvest to be all hipster on you guys and cite a film from 1942. Like he's doing. He's an actor. Playing an actor, playing an actor. You know, is all these levels. There's him, who he is on screen when he's nailing it who he's on screen when he's not nailing it. And there's this scene which seems to resonate with a lot of people. It makes me feel good because I, it, makes me, it makes me say that maybe I'm not the only nut who just curses and has these little cursing tantrums. Motherfucking goddamn son of a... Of course, can never fucking go the way I fucking want. And his character kind of has one of those. And we've all been there, right? Uh, more than Some of us more than we'd like to admit. Uh, and uh, it's just... It hits, it's so perfect. It's probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And DiCaprio does so well, and just his little insecurities, like he plays that actor, but showing how these actors are, are real people. And maybe some of that is him, because he is one of those actors where he's a big star, like this Rick Dalton character supposedly was, but also he's like a guy that likes to kind of get around and not be, you know, you know, uh, he seems real, real quiet. Like when I watch interviews, it's funny, like they're trying to like interview the panel, this one where they have like Margot Robbie and 
DiCaprio, Pitt, and Tarantino, and Tarantino is like the fucking interrupter. He's just interrupting everybody and like answering questions for him. Like Jesus, like DiCaprio barely speaks. It's funny, but like he's doing little things as his character, uh, Rick Dalton, like little twitches and little nerves that he has when he's not on camera, but they don't play attention to it. Like you have to watch for it. Like it's so awesome. I don't understand how people are saying that the story is about Cliff. I don't get it. Um, come at me, by the way, like, uh, not to come at me, like, argumentative, I'm be fucking, I had a civil conversation, God forbid we have one of those, right, but you guys know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the people of this podcast where I normally talk banter with on Twitter, you, whether it's DM or otherwise, if you feel different, or feel me, fucking hit me up at Dan Tom MMA, um, if you're feeling me on this, uh, but yeah, like, it was upsetting, because I just, I felt like I was robbed from an experience, and it sucks, because... Yeah, maybe I should have done more of my due, due, uh, due diligence on history for me being a history person. And I only know a little bit about the, those Hollywood Hills murders. Um, and I'll leave it at that. But if I knew more of the detailed history of it, I would have felt I would have gotten so much more. And so I'm thinking, I'm like, yeah, maybe I should have. And yeah, okay, like I don't take days off and work crazy. And I don't, this is my first movie of fucking 2019, you know? I only went to see one movie last year, and sadly it was fucking Queen or Bohemian Rhapsody or whatever it was. I don't see movies that much these days. I, I used to study it in school. I've got boxes of DVDs. I could talk film and random references, folks. But I can't hold my title anymore as far as recent years. And uh, so that aside, though, that aside, I will say I've got some decent history knowledge. So I have to imagine most people are walking into this movie and just, like, not getting it. Or even if they are getting it, they're not getting it as much as they should. And that almost feels like a crime to me. And again, I know Tarantino expects certain things from his audience, and he's one of the few guys I'll give that a pass to. But how much? There's a, like I said at the beginning, there's a line to everything. And it's just like, if I'm missing all this shit, how much is other people missing? Not to sound fucking like I'm on some high horse or something. Hopefully you understand the gist of what I'm trying to say there. Um, and, and that kind of that, that kind of bothered me, you know? Like, I don't know. Um, and, like, everyone's talking about, oh, Margot Robbie, you didn't give her enough. It's such a crime. And I get it. Again, without giving too much away, with the way he goes, I get the point. It's almost like a red herring why she's in there. Um, well, I don't get And here, again, this is how detached I am. This might lose all credibly the interview, but how detached I am? I have no clue who this fucking Margot Robbie person is. Like, is she good? Apparently she is because she's up for some Oscars. She's in some, some awards. She's in all the hot shit that I don't know about. But, like, she just looks like blonde actress number three to me. Like, I didn't really get anything from that from this movie. Um, although I will say the people, the scene people are shitting on the most is her at a movie theater, uh, which is no spoiler alert. By the way, it's only there because Quentin Tarantino in the interview that I just referenced, he actually shares a story where he did a similar thing for True Romance and asked if he could go into the movie theater... Um, and said, I'm in the poster, and goes in there and watches and kind of like listens to other people. And she's this girl, she's kind of like having like an innocent moment where she's really being indulgent. And at first you want to be like, oh, gross, blonde superstar, like you can't get enough of yourself. But like, it's really innocent, and it's showing who maybe Sharon Tate was and, and what we didn't get to see. So I appreciated that scene. And what I liked about it too, because she's in the theater, and you know, she, she gets her, her way in. This isn't a spoiler, a big reveal or anything. And you know, she has to like almost practically show her ID to prove who she is, that she actually is Sharon Tate in the movie. And they're like, oh, yeah, of course, go right in. And then she's in there and she hears people talking about the movie and like reacting to the scene she's in. And she's kind of having a blush and she's smiling and like keeping quiet. Like, oh, my God. 
But it was funny. It was like, I got to imagine that's like her getting likes, like a girl checking her Instagram and saying, how many people, oh my God, like how many people like my photo? Like, like that's what that scene was to me. Like, oh, that's probably how you got likes back then. You had to, you couldn't just turn on a phone because you didn't have a phone in your purse. You had to go to a movie theater. If you were in a movie and uh, listen to eavesdrop people ugly you while you're in disguise. That's how you got likes back then. So that was her getting likes. But um, I like the movie overall. It doesn't crack my top five. I want to say it probably cracks six or seven. Honestly, I know it's hipster of me, but I want to put Reservoir Dogs in my first, even though Pulp Fiction was the first movie I saw technically. No, I did see Reservoir Dogs um, first, but one of the things is I didn't see Reservoir Dogs for the longest time, but I was aware of it for the longest time because as a little boy, I was allowed to pretty much rent whatever I wanted. And fortunately, and see whatever movies I wanted, and that probably explains a lot about Dan Tom. I saw a lot of stuff I shouldn't have before my age, an appropriate time. But my favorite thing to do was going, whether I was walking or got a ride with my mom, was going down to the Blockbuster video nearest. And uh, I would go through the aisles. Um, that's how like, I saw those old UFCs and this and that. But I also would see certain titles, and certain boxes stuck out to me. Two of the boxes that stuck out most was, one was, I think this, this probably earns number two because I can't even remember the movie, that Chevy Chase one where he's like the, the Christmas one vacation where he's like the Santa Claus and he's getting electrocuted. Like that cassette tape all stuck, stuck out to me. Fist bump to y'all who know what I'm talking about. And the other one was Reservoir Dogs and because I was a gun nut, like, which is really bad. Um, I, I love drawing guns. And my favorite was 45 Calibers, particularly the 1911, but... The nickel-plated model, which I don't know, whatever Steve Buscemi and Harvey Keitel are sporting and flaunting toward each other, because that's the scene they use where their, their guns are drawn, uh, for the Reservoir Dogs, at least VHS cover in the early 90s. And I was just obsessed with that cover. And I always wanted to rent it, but I wasn't sure there was going to be enough action, which kind of was true, actually, for you know going by an 8-year-old, 7-year-old standards or whatever old I was when it came out on video. Uh, but eventually I got enough gold and, and rented it, and uh, my appreciation only drew. And, and um, you know, uh, like, we would have parties, you know, getting drunk in high school, me and my buddies, and, like, that was the film we would always play. Whether we played that movie or we would have to play, um, and I don't know why I came here tonight. I got a feeling that. And we would just, and that song would play. We would be three sheets of the wind off some Jack and Coke or something. It's probably what I was drinking back then. And we would be doing the the Michael Madsen, Mr. Blonde dance, like I just love. Oh God, he would have been, he would have been somewhere on my list. I will tell you that, Mr. Blonde. Which, by the way, let's get into a little bit of character talk. Well, why don't we just segue to that? Like, um, a little bit of character talk because Tarantino universe is kind of like MMA to me, like. In that interview, it was funny. I was seeing so many parallels. I wrote in my notes here, guys. Um, Quentin Tarantino is like Japanese MMA. And I didn't realize how much truth there is to that sentence. Because, like, kind of like this, like, you know, Quentin Tarantino has always been in love with the 70s. And this was kind of his love letter, essentially, once upon a time in Hollywood, was essentially his love letter to Hollywood and L.A. in the 70s. Because for a while, it was just like washed-up hitmen in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, with Jackie Brown or Pulp Fiction or what these people would look like kind of then or, or Reservoir Dogs even, right? Like they're continuing on, working on from the 70s. 
And uh, and it was almost like, Quentin, why don't you just do a movie in the 60s and 70s? And he finally kind of did. And, and hence the Django movies were also kind of from there, too. He was already moving in that direction, right? Like, Django was a, a disjointed kind of Western series, and he just did his own, right? So, And in his movies, he'd always bring back characters from the 70s. And... Even though that was his gimmick, he almost would get, you know, like, I would watch old interviews from, like, the 90s and Conan to, like, stuff he's being asked about now. Like, yes, it was his Valentine to Hollywood, but he doesn't want it being labeled off like that. Yes, he's in love with the 70s, but he doesn't want you thinking that's just, that's not the reason why he casted them. He will tell you he casted them because he's a good actor. He's a good actor. It's just his list of good actors is longer than Hollywood's. And he was explaining, you know, and this is even back in the 90s. And this is, again, this is kind of parallels to where our MMA world is, where he says, you know, there's a, there's a hot list on who's okay to use. And every year, about five people get removed from that list. And about five more people, per se, get added to that list on the male side and then more on the female. And that's kind of how it goes. Whereas his list is longer. He has an appreciation. He's not afraid to bring back a star from the 70s. And put him in a role and give him that reverence and appreciation that he deserves. And kind of like Japanese MMA, when you especially go back and you watch these Risen shows, how it's not about the record. It's not about wins and losses in Japanese MMA. They will bring back these older fighters. Um, and the crowd will respect them. Uh, they will buy that he deserves to be in this spot, even if he doesn't deserve to be in it from a meritocracy standpoint. He will lose said spot that he doesn't deserve to be in. And the crowd will still cheer. Because they appreciate the pageantry and the art form of what is and what was in its purest forms. Whether you like Tarantino or not, and he certainly has uh, some quirks, <laughs> whether it's his foot fetish or his use of the N-word and things that, you know, definitely have me raising an eyebrow. I feel you. I'm with you. I'm not revering this guy in any means, by any means, nor am I telling you to do so. But I respect what he does, man, and he is one of the last filmmakers out there. Um, and... Uh, he is uh, to film what is, you know, Japanese MMA as to what, what our scene is today, you know. Um, he also talks about something Hollywood did um, and what's going on. And, you know, he, he was in this roundtable. It was super interesting. I watched this. It was like an hour long. It was like Ridley Scott. They had Danny Boyle on there, uh, who I like a lot. Uh, who else they have? Uh, oh, uh, Inuritu Alejandro. I forget his name. I'm probably brutalizing it. The guy who did The, the Reverend. Um and all these directors, and it was like these masters of the minds, and they're sharing all these stories, and, uh, and it was really great. And Tarantino's kind of talking about, and, and really Scott's talking about how the bar is lower. He goes, the bar is lower these days, and it almost sounded like insulting and, and hip, but all you know, it, you know, it, it even could have been thrown, considered thrown shade because really Scott, you know, and he was getting the respect that he deserves as the elder statesman at that table, but most of other directors were pretty much far younger than him, maybe minus Tarantino and some others. But uh, they, but they were all in agreement. There was no weird vibe. They agreed with with, with really Scott and Tarantino. Kind of adds to that point, which again, circling back to MMA, where a UFC level fighter isn't quite what it used to be. Um, and that's kind of like what Ridley Scott was saying as far as film. And Tarantino's theory as to why that is, is because there's just too much. That two things, that one, Hollywood oversaturated its market a while ago. And it really never recovered. And that's where the corporations, and that's what gave the corporations, hence the 
quote unquote, the studio's power. It's because they went and they went and, and, and kind of forced all the work and elsewhere and, and, you know, um, and just kind of uh, saturated the industry and over-regulated the industry, right? And Tarantino also brings up around this time, movie prices went up. And now people are like, oh, have you heard of inflation? But then I actually, you know, some people that I actually dug into it and posted the inflation rates with movie price tickets and it just, it, it, it didn't match up. And it actually goes in line with what Quentin was saying. And the prices went up. And now with technology, we have streaming services. So you don't have to work as hard to get somebody to patronize your business, right? It's all the click of a fingertip. We don't get people going to the events. We don't get people going to the theaters supporting the real art uh, as much. It's harder to do. And there's more places to get it from. So now it becomes even more saturated. Now there's even more price points. And the prices aren't getting any higher because the pay-per-views, the one thing we have to pay for, we're having to pay even more for those still. The prices on those are going up and the entry points on those are getting even harder to do. And like the film industry, like the film wonder, industry wonders why people aren't going to the movies anymore. I wonder what that portends for the MMA industry. And I couldn't help but thinking the parallels to that discussion and the points Quentin Tarantino was bringing up. And that's why I say Quentin Tarantino is like our Japanese MMA. He's trying to keep alive something that really is dying out and is not very popular. <laughs> And God bless him for it. Uh, and I can see why he's only limiting himself to a certain amount of left. And yeah, we'll see where our sport goes. I'm not trying to be doom and gloom here, folks. But yeah. You can't help but see those parallels, huh? Hmm. Funny how history repeats itself. But anyways, closing out with just some characters. Mr. Blonde. <laughs> At first I was like, who would be Mr. Blonde in a Who's like a sociopath fucking like straight up killer? Who would be Mr. Blonde, Michael Madsen? And my first thought was Alexander Milianenko. But then when you start connecting certain... Some of these characters are connected in the movie. So if you really want to go for extra bonus credit and not just give your favorite Quentin Tarantino character and not just give your fa favorite Quentin Tarantino character and who, they're, who they parallel to the MMA world, but like a third layer of bonus is like, okay, that character may parallel to this character of the MMA world, but does that fit in the story? Like, for, for instance... The reason why I'm, I'm leaning off the of Alexander Emelianenko and maybe thinking maybe Mr. Blonde's more of a Greg Hardy, which is kind of ironic because Mr. Blonde's one of my favorite characters. And uh, I'm trying not to be a Greg Hardy hater here, but I'm just saying Greg Hardy, probably not my favorite character, fair to say. Right? It's a, kind of odd there, but, you know, eh, you going to bark all day, little doggy, or you going to bite? Like, Greg Hardy has that about him, too. Like, he'll, he'll let people ch chirp at him, and he'll just smile, whether it's a fighter, uh, uh, interview, trying to get snarky with him. And he'll smile and just give his own version. You're going to bark all day, dog? You're going to bite. So he fits character for character. But when I got to Nice Guy Eddie, Chris Penn, so you're telling me that out of the fucking blue, <laughs> that he's just going to, that he's just going to betray Joe out of the fucking blue. <laughs> Bill Bird is a great one. Out of the fucking blue. He just like over exaggerates the Chris Ben. But uh I could see uh I can see nice guy Eddie as Dana White, right? You know? And which which I guess that would make that would make Joe 
that would make a that would make Joe uh, that would make Joe Cabot uh, like probably like what like one of the Fertitta like Frank Fertitta I'm guessing right that probably makes him like Frank or Uncle Frank probably makes him Uncle Frank Fertitta Uncle Uncle Joe is gonna be pissed when he gets here right just just giving it to him that is uh, Dana White so um, who else do we have anybody I wrote Mr Pink because one of the few people that uh, that uh, I want to make sure I give it to the other person too. One of the few people who chimed in was uh, actually Gabe Killian for favorite characters. Um, he didn't give a list or who they parallel, but he said Mr. Pink, who's played by Steve Buscemi in Reservoir Dogs, and uh, I love me some Mr. Pink. Uh, you know, he, he's a he's a he's a great character. But I wrote Gabe Killian next to it because you know what, Gabe, I'll just make you Mr. Pink, and that's not an insult. Why am I Mr. Pink? Because Mr. Pussy was taken. Um, but you know. Uh, Hey, you know, Bashemi is kind of a wiry guy, right? But he's not afraid to speak his mind when he doesn't think, when he doesn't agree, even if it's not the most popular opinion, right? That's kind of Mr. Killian over there. I'm not picking on you, Gabe. I'm just saying, right? You're not afraid to speak your mind. And at the end of the day, when the bullets are flying, you know, Gabe over there, he's, he's, he's more often than not picking up money. So there, it's a compliment. It's a compliment. Gabe is Mr. Pink. Um, <laughs> Uh, Hans Landa is one of my favorite characters. S. S. Landa, of course, that, that scene in Inglorious Bastards. By the way, uh, number two would be Pulp Fiction, probably, if I was doing my favorite Tarantino movies. Um, number three would be Inglorious Bastards. A lot of people put Inglorious at number one. And there's, then there's another school people who are like, Inglorious Bastards is the most overrated thing on the planet. I don't agree with those people. I do like Inglorious Bastards, but I also, man, agree with a lot of the points from a lot of those haters of Inglorious Bastards. I agree with a lot of them. You take out SS Londa and you take out that tavern scene, it's a different movie. It's a different movie. And even the end, SS Londa's character, I don't know if I really liked that much how they did it. It felt like they kind of speeded up and got almost a little too goofy. But again, uh, you know, the movie was kind of on one at that point. But that, that's, that opening scene, though, is not overrated. That's just a beautiful tension. Fuck the milk continuity. That's just beautiful tension with the farmer, SS Londa. Um, I wrote Jeff Nowinski because, you know, I just feel like he's like, that just kind of makes sense, right? He's serving a very powerful party. Uh, he is uh, brought in to uh, as the rat, right? He is uh, he is he's, he's, uh, he's to sniff people out, yeah, right? Right? There's a lot of parallels there. So SS Landa, a favorite character in his parallel, Jeff Nowinski. Um, Jules Winfield. I mean, how can you not like Jules Winfield, uh, who is uh, Samuel Jackson's character in Pulp Fiction? Now. Reason why he's not just—he's a great character for many reasons. We could go on for all the obvious reasons, but I'll just say he's a unique character in the Tarantino universe, and also was a unique character to try to pair him with an MMA person for this reason, is because he is—you know—all the Tarantino movies for the most part end in violence, um, and Jules Winfield is kind of the one guy to try to go away from that trend. He actually decides for peace right in the diner. He opts for peace. Which is goes against the grain from the Carantino universe and how they end the films. Um, there's only one other character that tries to opt for peace, and he wasn't as successful about it. We'll get to him in a second. So I love him, and it was kind of weird who to pair him with because then again, if you're kind of pairing it with the scenery, you're like, okay, well then, whoever I pair him with, then you, you know, for granted it's extra credit, but it can be countered. Okay, well then, who's going to be his Vincent, his 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 uh, Vincent Vega? I'm getting confused with Vic Vega and Vincent Vega. Uh, you know, Travolta, right? Who's his character? Who is he serving? So, I put Masvidal in question mark here. Now, Masvidal went on a kind of a peaceful retreat, right? 
kind of it changed his mind. He had a, his, his little divine intervention. He didn't get shot at like Jules and them in the apartment, which changed Jules' mind and sends him on this path of the righteous man, right, or whatever the to be like Cain and walk the earth like Kung Fu. Because Masvidal did that, but he, he did come back and he's given you know Le, Leon Edwards three pieces and sodas and and, and ice and. Uh, you know, Ben Askren. So maybe it doesn't fit in, in, to a T, but Jules Winsfield's an old school gangster. He's a guy that's been around the game. He's a guy that's not afraid to talk and walk the walk when he needs to, although that's not his prerogative. Um, you know, he went on the peace mission. He had that kind of revelation. So these are kind of Masvidal's things. Now you're going to say, well, how the fuck is John Travolta Colby Covington? Well, first of all, how is Colby Covington anybody in the Quentin Tarantino universe? But it actually does fit because, you know, uh, I already kind of have, you know, uh, a Dana White laid out, so to speak. And I don't know if I did a coker or anything. So I don't know who I would label Marcellus Wallace, who they look for. But if you look at it, they're two partners, Jules and Vincent, Colby and Masvidal. But... Through their environment, they kind of take a fork in the road, right? Masvidal, Kobe not talking anymore. That the title talks, you know, Kobe's kind of doing his thing with talking trash, running full gimmick, whereas Masvidal is being the anti-gimmick. He's doing the opposite. He's being the realest of the real and slapping anybody who gets in his way, right? Uh, kind of the polar opposites, yet they're friends, right? Kind of crazy. So the Jules and Vincent kind of fit that sense, and... You know, with Vincent continuing, made his choice in Pulp Fiction to continue on the path that he was on, and ended up getting him hurt. I'm not saying that's going to happen to Colby. I'm not saying that I wish it on Colby. I like Colby, man. I do. Um, I, I, I've never been a, a hater on him for a second, but at the same time, you know, <laughs> we can see some parallels there, folks. So, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, Oren Ishii is an awesome character. I don't know if she would make my top five or not, but Valentina Shevchenko, that's got to be the obvious parallel, right? Like the weapons and the fucking killer. And if anybody's going to be on a Fox Force 5 team that's a female, it's probably going to be Valentina. Um, <laughs> I almost put Dana White as Ordell Robbie. Uh, by the way, shouts to the only other person that uh, put, uh, said it, put Ordell, I believe, as their, uh, as their uh, person. Let me see if I can find it. There it is. Drew Steinberg, at DJ Steinberg 258, Ordell Robbie. Dude, that's a cool character. Jackie Brown doesn't get enough love. Um, like, Jackie Brown is, like, my five or six teeter with um, Django. And I would say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is probably, like, number seven. Um, but, yeah, Ordell Robbie, he's just so smooth, man. Like, I love that. I think it's Chris Tucker, that, like, setup that he does. And you just see, like, what a smooth cat he is. But that scene, I'm like, you know what? We already got Dana White as Dice Guy Eddie. So uh, I, I, I assigned Saki Kabara as Ordell Robbie, you know? He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a gangster in a different way, you know? He's, he's got the white suit. He wears the white. And, uh, uh, yeah, parallel opposites. But also they deal in deadly dealings, you know? Ordell Robbie. Dr. Schultz, one of my favorite characters. He's one of the others, like Jules Winfield, who opts for nonviolence. And uh, I actually I don't have an MMA fighter or... Uh, promoter or coach this one's actually a media member Aaron Bronstetter <laughs> shouts to my man Aaron uh, I don't know if Dr. Schultz is a Jew but that might actually be apropos too because they're both uh, they're both Jewish as well um, uh, by the way obviously I, lo I love Aaron so this is a, a positive but uh, the reason why I put Aaron here because it's, it's funny it's uh, and I love this character too but it's like Dr. Schultz he, he likes to diffuse 
by talking and he's really smart he's very witty um but like the scene where you know his introduction scene where he shoots the sheriff you're like why the hell did this guy who seems really smart and reasonable just shoot the sheriff and but he's got a plan he's like now i want you to call now go get the what the admiral or the whoever i forget the i forget uh, whoever it was but he ends up having a warrant right and it's just this great reveal where he's always he'll do outlandish things and you're like what the fuck but he has all from legal, factual, scientific, logical. Like, he has all his ducks in a row. But the way he presents it, it's always very kind of like, he hits you with it at first. Like, what the fuck did he just do that for, right? And I'm like, that's like my man Aaron. And again, uh, I love Aaron. Aaron's a friend of the show. He's been on the show. He listens to the show. I'm a friend with him in the real world. I agree with his opinions more often than not as well. Um, and he doesn't do this, of course, this is the much more dramatic version, right? Uh, the character, Aaron does his job as a journalist. He doesn't do anything to be like, you know, like, like he's not trying to be a character or anything. But Aaron will say certain things that are unpopular opinions, whether it's contenders about contender series, whether it's about uh, just somewhat, whatever hot topic. And whether you agree with him or not, you'd be like, well, okay, all right, Aaron. If you feel that way, huh? But then you go and you click on the thread or you listen to him if he's on his podcast or whatever he always backs it up and he'll have a great argument for it so i mean that of course as a compliment and uh, aaron bronsted or dr schultz there uh django speaking of dr schultz django django and chain i don't know i guess that would be my nate diaz right i mean that's the ultimate man against the man you know having shit taken away from him having to earn it back you know it's the scene the django smoking the thing you know i don't know i could just i could totally see a a Photoshop of, uh, of uh, how easy is that to see a Nate Diaz Django and Chain Photoshop, right? You put Nate in front of the Jamie Foxx face and you, you superimpose the blend in there. Oh, it's perfect. You wouldn't even notice it. There's a difference. And last but not least, Mr. Wolf. I put Lorenzo Fertitta. Lorenzo Fertitta will be Mr. Wolf, right? Because uh, Uncle Frank runs shit, Joe Cabot, but Lorenzo Fertitta was the guy you would send to fix stuff like when Dana wasn't getting along with the Ream. Remember, remember that? Remember, remember they bumped heads back in the day? It was Fertitta that signed Alistair Overeem. And uh, now, of course, the tiffs are more public because I don't know if there's that same middleman anymore. Now it's kind of just Dana versus these guys. Um, and he obviously relishes the role. But yeah, Mr. Wolf, man. Mr. Wolf is uh, Lorenzo Fertitta. We will line up the blankets, coating the back of the seat evenly so that the subterfuge is short. <laughs> I love that he uses the word subterfuge. Uh, long episode, guys, but all right, that was my, that was the first half, first hour of MMA talk, catching up on what's going on, what happened in the world, what's going on with me. We did some Pulp Fiction talk. Uh, I don't think I gave away any spoilers, although I did do some real in-depth Tarantino Universe talk there. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Um, banter with me uh, the, the, with some of this stuff, folks. Hit me up if you agree, disagree. Whatever, I know it was a long episode, but hey, it's Sunday when you're probably all getting this. Nothing's going on. It was a slow weekend. So uh, I was late, but perhaps I'm on time to fill, fill some nice listening time for you here. I've, I've taken up your ears enough. I'll be back with a breakdown uh, episode uh, for Shenzhen, China, which I almost went out to. I'll tell you how that story almost came together next, episode, next week. You know me for the China podcast. I always bring out some special stories. And uh, enjoy yourselves. Enjoy life. Uh, roll light uh, <laughs> don't be that guy in the practice room good luck with your picks and plays your bets if you're a degenerate and of course always protect your neck